Oh, Father, what a beautiful, beautiful prayer. We, we, we prayed it with the choir as they sang it. Psalm 139. We fly on the wings of the morning. You were there. In the depths of the darkest night, you were there. You're not only creator of this universe, you're the sustainer. Your fingerprints are everywhere. And that means, Father, truly you are here. Oh, we need you to teach us today. Let this teaching be clear. Hide, hide all the clamor that would distract us. And may it be the voice of Holy Scripture that not only engages our minds, but we need you to empower our hearts for the glory of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. I would like you to meet a friend of mine. His last name is Elton. Give a, give a warm welcome to Mr. S.K. Elton, who I would like to come out and join me here on the platform. S.K. Elton. Skeleton. Yeah. Thank you, Norm Pottle, one of our deacons. This is one of the deacons who came late to first service. And actually, actually, this is from the biology department. Thank you, Dr. David Steen, for loaning this. This belongs to them. I understand this is a biology major who never graduated, and so going to good use. Actually, he's standing here today, this skeleton, because he represents a system of 206 parts. That's the average human skeleton, 206 parts. How many different ways can a 206-part system be put together? That's the question. How many different ways? Well, if there were only one bone, and I happen to have in my pocket a clavicle, that would be what's up here, would be known as your collarbone. I have a clavicle here. If there's just one bone in the system, this can only be put together one way. Isn't that right? One. One times one equals one. If you have two bones, if I took both clavicles, one times two equals two. Two. So there are two different ways that you could assemble it. If, if there were three bones, one times two times three equals six. Yeah. If there were four bones, one times two times three times four equals 24, and so on and so on. So here's what mathematicians tell us. You need to find, if you want to find out how many different ways there are to put a 206-part system together, you just have to go one times two times three times four, all the way up to 206. And the number is called 206 factorial. It's written with a 206 and then a big exclamation mark after the six. Now, the number is gigantic. The number is actually 10 to the 388th power. That means you write the number 1 and then you write 388,000, uh, 388 rather, zeros after the 1. In fact, let, let, let's just try it on the screen. Here is what 388 zeros look like. Count them real quick. Quick, 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 quick. We'll put them all on the same screen. All right, here they are. That is the number 10 to the 388th. I read an essay the other day, got a book in Australia, essay written by um, a scientist, Jerry Bergman. He teaches at Northwest State College in Archibald, Ohio. His second Ph.D. is in human biology. He notes in this essay that the achievement of only the correct general position, not that is it, is it right side up or upside down. Don't worry about all that. Don't worry about the tendons. Don't worry about should it be twisted to the right or the left. Just get it. Get these in order. 
The achievement of only the correct general position required for all 206 parts will occur only once out of the 10 to the 388th random attempt. So let me put that number back up on the screen. If you had that many tries, all right, let's put it on the screen, please. If you had that many tries, it would take you that many to get one, just one, where all of these are in the right position. Not in the right angle, but just in the right position. Now, how long would it take for us to do that? Now, Dr. Bergman goes on and he says, okay, let's take all the time that uh, scientists will grant to the universe, astronomic time. They're guessing that the universe is between 10 billion to 20 billion years old. How many seconds is that? That would be 10 to the 18th number of seconds, all right? So that's one with 18 zeros after it. That's how many seconds in history, in all of the universe. If you could do this, if every second you could take all 206 and go... Rearrange them every second. Whoa, I don't like that one. If you could do it every single second for the history of the universe, okay? Dr. Bergman notes that the chances of the correct general position being obtained by random is less than once in 10 billion years. Less than once. You say, hey, well, Dwight, that's it. That's all I wanted to know. Can you get a skeleton in 10 billion years? In the history of this universe, can you get a skeleton? Oh, my friend, don't get too excited too quickly. Because I remind you that in order to get this skeleton, you first have to have the bones. You have to have all 206 perfectly formed, ready to go. And you have to start at the beginning of time. You have to start 10 to 20 billion years ago. Is it possible? Here's uh, Dr. Bergman's conclusion. For all practical purposes, a zero possibility exists that the correct general position, only the position of only 206 parts, could be obtained simultaneously by chance. Zero possibility. Because guess what, guys? There are more than 206 bones. Let's take the cerebral cortex right back here, all right, the human brain. Ten billion cells in just the cerebral cortex. Each one, humanly speaking, infinitely complex. And not just the cerebral cortex. Listen to this. There are 75 trillion cells in a human being's body. 75 trillion. So you've got to have 206. And then you've got to, you've got to get all 10 billion of the cerebral cortex. And then you have to put all 75 trillion cells in the perfectly correct position. Ladies and gentlemen, if it's statistically impossible for 206, can you imagine that it is zero, nada, not possible to put the human body together in the history of the universe randomly? You say, hey, preacher, big deal. So what's this have to do with the rumors from the East? Ah, you watch. You just watch here. I want to invite you right now to use some of your 10 billion uh, cerebral cortex cells and open your Bible, please, to the Bible's last book. Watch this. This is incredible. Bible's last book. Let's go to the book of Revelation, please. Let's take a look. Our teaching series is called Rumors from the East. Those of you who are joining us today for the first time, we're delighted to have you, by the way. Uh, you'll be able to pick this right up as if there hadn't been a sermon teaching before this, uh, this presentation. Revelation chapter 7. If you didn't bring a Bible, please take the Pew Bible. It's right in front of you. Pull it out. That's for you to use. And it would be page... 
it would be page 826. And by the way, before I forget, before I forget, I want to jot these numbers down real quick. Get the numbers while they're still hot in our minds. Pull your pen out and take the study guide that's in today's worship bulletin. You have a study guide waiting for you. I want to make sure today everybody gets it. In fact, if you'd like an extra one for a friend of yours who's not here, hold your hand up. Our ushers are going to put them in your hands right now all the way to the balcony. I want to make sure the choir, you, you have your study guides here? Do you? Okay. Now, while the ushers are passing them out, I want to say to those of you watching on television, you can go to our website. In fact, let me put it on the screen right now. There it is, www.pmchurch. Go to that website, please. Click onto this teaching series. It's called Rumors from the East. This happens to be part six. We're heading towards the end of it. This is part six, and this one's entitled East Gate. That'll become clear in just a moment. Click on the East Gate where it says Study Guide. Boom, you click there. You will have the same study guide that we have. You can print it out or just leave it right there on the computer. And... Uh, follow this fascinating teaching. All right, everybody has it. Let's get the numbers while they're still fresh in our mind. Jot them down, please. A random assembly of a 206-part system. That would be the human skeleton. Okay, 1 times 2 times 3 times 4 times 5 all the way up to times 6 equals 10 to the 388th. You know that you write an exponent. Come on, you mathematicians. You write it smaller and you lift it up a little bit, all right? 10 to the 388th. That means 1 with 388 zeros after it. That's the, that's how many tries you would have to make in order to get one time, get this right. All right. Keep writing here. Rearranging these 206 parts once every second for all of astronomic time, which would be between 10 to 20 billion years or 10 to the 18th seconds. Just get that down. That's how many seconds in the history of the universe is a one out of 10. And then you put this real small three, 388 minus the 18 minus one for every second. It's it's a one out of 10 to the 370th possibility. Now, you scientists know all this stuff and you majors in math uh, specialists. Now, I want you to get this quotation. Leading Dr. Jerry Bergman from uh, Northwest State College in Ohio. Fill it in, please. For all practical purposes, a zero, a zero possibility exists that the correct general position of only 206 parts could be obtained simultaneously by chance, and the average human has about 75 trillion cells. Now, here comes an extra sentence. This illustration indicates that the argument commonly used by evolutionists, here's what the evolutionary scientists say, given enough time, all right, given enough time, anything can happen. Dr. Bergman says, guess what? Given enough time, anything cannot happen. It essentially, it essentially takes this argument and leaves it, write it in, wanting. It's bankrupt. It just is humanly, it's statistically impossible to do. What's all this have to do with rumors from the East? All right. You have Revelation 7? Let's go. Let's fly. Revelation 7. Let's pick it up in verse 1. We were there last week. Let's read these same verses again. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree, and then verse 2, I saw another angel ascending from the east. Key word in this series. We're looking at the references to the east. Ha and there are only three of them. Having the seal of the living God. And this fifth angel cried with a loud voice, like a megaphone, to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. And he said, verse 3, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. John is curious now. And I heard, he said, the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now, let's pretend just for a moment, ladies and gentlemen, 
that we have never read these words before. Even a cursory reading, if this was the first time we'd heard them, a cursory reading will yield these four points. Jot them down, please. Point number one, just a, a surface reading. Number one, whatever is happening here transpires just before the return of Christ. Right in the word return. Happens just before the return. In fact, let's look at the last line of the chapter just before uh, these words. Chapter 6, verse 17. For the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Second coming. Boom. Just before that transpires, this event in chapter 7 takes place. All right? Number one. Number two. Jot this down. These 144,000. Who are they? They are... It's symbolic. It's a symbolic number. They are a symbol of God's friends. Write it in. At the end of time, and the answer to the question in, in, in chapter 6, verse 17, who will stand up for God in the end? The question is, who's going to be around? These. All right, number three, jot this down. The symbolic seal in their foreheads is the Father's name, Revelation 14, 1, and is a symbol of His ownership. Write those two words in. Revelation 14, 1. In fact, let's, let's just take a look at that for a moment. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written where? Written where? On their forehead. So the seal, the name, interchangeable. Okay? Look, at when you put your name on something, refresh my memory. What does it mean when you put your name on something? Hmm? When you put your name on a book, what's it mean? It's mine. This belongs to me. When you put your name on a car deed or title, what's that mean? This book belongs, this, this car rather belongs to me. When you put your name on a mortgage application, what does that mean? Boom, this house belongs to the bank. That's what it means. <laughs> Doesn't belong to you. You think that house belongs to you? You're crazy. You'll never own that house. It belongs to the bank. They bought it. They just trust you. When you sign, how many weddings have I conducted? When you sign your marriage certificate, I've watched those signatures and then I have to add mine. When you sign your marriage certificate, you know what that spouse is saying? I belong to you, honey. I know I belong to you. You belong to each other. What you put your name on means it belongs to me. 144,000 are a generation of radical, loyal friends of God who have chosen to belong exclusively to Him. All right. Cursory reading. You, you can figure these four out. Here comes the final one, number four. Jot it down, please. God has ownership because God is Creator. That's Revelation 4.11. Jerry read it a moment ago as our Scripture reading. Let's put uh, Revelation 4.11 on the screen. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. Ah, the whole universe belongs to God. Look, look. If you were created by God, you belong to Him. Which, ladies and gentlemen, that's the rub. That's the rub right there. Some people say, no way, Jose. I am not belonging to any God. I am. I am all I need. And that's the rub. Here, here is a gen- geneticist. His name is uh, Richard Lewontin. He's an atheist. He made the statement about evolutionary science. Materialism, that would be no God. Materialism is an absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. We just can't have it. Therefore, no. You know, that's really sad. I'll tell you why it's sad. Because the human race, many, do not know What a friend to the human race the Creator really is. He's the best friend we got. Ah. 
All right. There they are. Four realities we can know just from one time reading it through. We know these four. Question. But does the text more clearly identify who these loyal friends of God are and how can we identify them? Just before the return of Christ, how are they identified? Answer. There are seven evidences. I'm going to share now seven evidences with you. When the seven are done, I'm sitting down. Drop, jot these down, please. Seven evidences. Evidence number one. Here's how we can know of whom this verse speaks. Evidence number one, they, these people, are sealed with the seal of the living God. Right in the word living. In fact, let's just put uh, Revelation 7-2 back on the screen. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God. So I go to my Bible works laptop computer uh, program. Okay? Do magic. It's incredible. And I type in the words living God. Find them all for me. Boom, boom, boom. Thirty times in all the Bible, that little couplet, living God, appears. I give you, a, in your study guide, you see Jeremiah 10, 10 through 13, and Acts 14, 15. Just two of them. But what do these two tell us? Fill your study guide in, please. The living God is synonymous with the creating God. Synonymous. Watch this. Let's put Acts 14, 15. Paul and his buddy Barnabas are in Lystra. And these people, because they just healed a lame man, the people are convinced these are two gods. Two gods have come to earth and they start offering sacrifices. And Paul said, hold it, hold it. He realized what was going on here. And so he cries out these words, Acts 14, 15. And he said, man, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. And we preach to you that you should turn from these useless idols to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea and all things that are in them. There it is, you see. When you see living God, that means creating God. The seal of God that goes in the forehead of his loyal friends is the seal of the creator. Creator, all right? Evidence number two. Jot this down, please. Evidence number two. Oh, and by the way, before I get to evidence number two, can I just hit the pause button for a second? Just, just, just one moment. I've been reading John Ashton's compilation of essays entitled, In Six Days, Why Fifty Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation. Got the book in Australia. One thing that is finally has occurred to me as I've read these essays, and that is both theories of origin, naturalism, which means no, no supernatural, no, no deity, naturalism, no God, and supernaturalism, which says, oh, yes, God, God creator. Both theories of origin are philosophically, keyword, philosophically dependent upon a God for the theory of their origins. Listen to this. Here's, here, here's uh, Jeremy L. Walter, who teaches engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. He's observed. Naturalistic evolution is forced to marry the gods of Mother Earth and Father Time in order to come up with their hypothesis. Here's the thinking. Given enough time, the forces of nature, we don't know how they do it, but if, with enough time, the forces of nature are able to create life. So that time and nature become de facto gods who inexplicably are able to do what we cannot show. We don't know how. They just do it. Leading Stephen Jay Gould, the late Stephen Jay Gould, Harvard. Brilliant evolutionary scientist. Leading Gould to exclaim that humans, listen to this, humans are a glorious evolutionary accident that required 60 trillion contingent events. All right, 60 trillion of them. And that even, he went on, even if evolutionary history on earth repeated itself a million times, he doubted where anything like homo sapiens would ever develop again. 
We are a glorious accident. 60 trillion factors, variables, all lined up. Boom! We got us. Isn't that some? But as we just noted with our skeleton here, there simply isn't enough time and forces in nature to put alone a 206-part system, let alone a 75-trillion-part system. See? Which is why whichever theory you embrace essentially becomes, come on, hear me out now, essentially becomes a choice of God's. You may choose Mother Nature and Father Time, or you may choose the living Creator, God of the universe, but listen, both theories require an intervening force unknown and unfalsifiable by man. Scientists know what that means. Unfalsifiable. We can't prove it. Evidence number two. Jot this down, please. The angel that brings the sealing message ascends out of the where? East. Write that in, please. We're we're examining these three references to the East. Remember, East is very significant. And by the way, it's extremely significant to what we've just read here. You remember the principle that we've been allowing to help us interpret Revelation? Nearly every word and phrase in Revelation is borrowed from where? Borrowed from where? The Old Testament. I'll tell you what, it's true again, right here. And from the book of Ezekiel. Once again, from the book of Ezekiel. Watch this. Some of you have never seen these words before. Ezekiel chapter 46. Look at this. Ezekiel 46. That would be in your pew Bible, page 592. Ezekiel 46. And just uh, verse 1. And verse 3. Ezekiel 46. Isn't, look, look at this. Thus says the Lord God, the gateway of the inner court that faces toward the east. Key word now. He's talking about the temple, the new temple that they're going to build in Jerusalem. The gateway of the inner court that faces toward the east shall be shut the six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be opened, and on the day of the new moon it shall be opened. Now drop down to verse 3. Likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the entrance to this gateway, the one facing the east, before the Lord on the Sabbath and the new moons. Would you write this down, please? The east gate. The east gate in Jerusalem's temple, was to be the Sabbath gate. Please note that East is linked to the Creator's Sabbath. Not surprisingly so, since the very word for East, used in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, and in the New Testament as well, antole, the word for East, in fact, means sunrising, means rising, 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 rising. So, and how, did the, how does the Scripture keep time? The Scripture keeps time by the, what they call the movement of the sun, sunset. From sunset to sunset to sunset to sunset, you keep time. Starts with the dark part of the day, ends with the light part of the day. From sunset to sunset. That's how the Scripture keeps time. So the Sabbath is marked. All time is marked by the sunset. So what Ezekiel is saying is there will be six cycles, six cycles of sunsets. And then on the seventh cycle, that gate is closed. On the seventh cycle, the doors open. Because it's the Sabbath now. The gate that faces east. East and the Seventh-day Sabbath are bound together. Interestingly enough, the Gospel of Luke does the same thing. Watch this. This is evidence number three. Jot this down. The Gospel, that would be Luke, that calls Jesus the sunrise. If you were here last week, we saw that in Luke 1, verse 78. The Gospel that calls Jesus the sunrise, that's the Greek word for east, is the same Gospel that calls Jesus the Lord of the Sabbath. In chapter 6, verse 5. See, the Greek word for sunrise, east, 
In Christ, in Christ, this is the key point, in Christ, East and Sabbath are joined together. Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of the East, Lord of the Sunrise, in Christ, they're joined together. Now, what do we know just from these three pieces of evidence? We know that the angel that arises out of the East with the seal of the living God for his loyal friends brings the seal of the Creator, all right? The seal of the Creator brings it from the East, which would be a sign of the Sabbath, and brings it through Him who is the divine Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is front and center all the way through this. Front and center. In fact, do you know what? John, the the, the one who wrote Revelation, makes the identical point. Watch this. Evidence number four. Jot it down. John in Revelation links Jesus as Lord of Salvation, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, to Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath, chapter 1, verse 10. This is fascinating. Watch. Well, let's put uh, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 on the screen. John is giving a, a, a doxology to the Trinity, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him, Jesus, who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him, to Jesus, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There is no question in John that Jesus is the Lord of salvation. Now, just lines later, verse 10 of chapter 1, John talks about the Sabbath. Watch this. We'll put uh, Revelation 1.10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, and there is the materialization of Christ himself. Christ actually comes down to John. Would you jot this down, please? The intent of John in the Apocalypse is to accentuate the divinity, the divinity of Jesus. Keep writing. In an empire that worships the Caesar, John will show all of heaven worshiping the Christ. Fill that in. And that's why John does not call the day of worship what he calls it all the way through his gospel, written in nearly the same time, just a few years earlier. John won't call it the Sabbath. His friends Matthew, Mark, and Luke all call it the Sabbath. John won't. Only one time in all the New Testament does does this... Name for the Sabbath appear. And John calls it the Lord's Day. In fact, we need to fill that in. But in order to emphasize Jesus' divine lordship over all creation, here it is. Only here does John call the seventh-day Sabbath the Lord's Day. Now, you know, when you and I come to that phrase, we think it reads like this. The Lord's Day. No, 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 John said, that's not the point I'm making. This is the Lord's Day. And I'm using a phrase used nowhere else in order to make sure... You understand, I was, in wor- I was worshiping on the Sabbath. I was in worship when suddenly, on the Lord's day, the Lord showed up to me. That's his point. The divinity of Christ. The Lord's day. Well, what day is the Lord's day? Let's put Luke chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus was clear. We didn't read this a moment ago. I'll give them a moment to scramble back to it. Luke 6, verse 5. And Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is also Lord. I'm Lord. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath day. Like the rest of the New Testament, John exalts Jesus as both Lord of salvation and Lord of the, of the seventh-day Sabbath. In fact, here's a little summary. Would you fill it in, please? So the seal that goes in the foreheads of God's loyal friends at the end of time is a recognition of Him as Creator through the Sabbath, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three more left. Evidence number five. Evidence number five. The Old Testament confirms confirms that conclusion. Keep your pen moving. Let me just run three lines by you real quick here. Psalm 40, verse 8. Isn't this, isn't this, 
Hebrews 10 tells us these are the words of Jesus. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law, write it in, and your law is within my heart. I would expect Jesus to say that. He was the lawgiver in the first place. I would expect the law to be in his heart. And I love how God describes his people in Isaiah 51, verse 7, particularly here in the New Living Translation. God speaking, listen to me, you who know right from wrong and cherish my law, my law in your hearts. Very interesting one more line from Isaiah. Jot it down. Isaiah 8:16. God is speaking seal. Oh, we've been talking about the seal. So that word catches our attention. Seal. The Hebrew, by the way, it speaks of an official seal. Seal the law among my disciples. Hey, have you ever seen an official seal? Hebrew's clear. This is an official seal. Have you ever seen one? The next time you see the president giving a news conference, you will see on the very front of his little lectern, you see a little seal, won't you? Every time the, the president gives a news conference. So let's just take our present president, George W. Bush. The seal has three ingredients. It has, number one, the name, George W. Bush. Number two, the office. Let's put that picture up, please. Number two, the office, president, and his jurisdiction of the United States of America. He's not president of the world. He's president only of the United States of America. Isn't that right? That's his jurisdiction. Now, look, I want you to take a look at the Decalogue. That would be the Ten Commandments. There's only one of the Ten Commandments that has the three official ingredients of the seal in it. Let's take a look. Go back, to the, uh, go back to the Ten Commandments. That would be Exodus chapter 20. I'd like you to see this for yourself. Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Thank you, Pastor, for your testimony just a moment ago about uh, how your church, every, every Sunday, it repeated the Ten Commandments. Isn't that right? Repeated the Ten Commandments. In fact, you didn't mention, Jerry, that you two are students together in the theological seminary now because here you are attending the seminary. Is that correct? Yeah. Good to have you. But here is what is read in many churches every, every uh, worship, weekly worship. Let's go down to the Fourth Commandment. Drop down to verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days, verse 9, you shall labor and do all your work. But, verse 10, the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, your, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. One more verse, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Jot it down, please. The only one of the Ten Commandments that contains the three ingredients of an official seal is the Fourth Commandment. The Fourth. Write it in. The Fourth. What are the three ingredients again, Pastor? Let's put them on the screen. Ingredient number one, you have to have the name. The Lord your God. There it is. The Lord your God. You have to have an office. What's the office? The Maker. Now, it says He made. We have to turn that verb into a noun. He's the Maker, the Creator. And what's His jurisdiction? Ah, oh, what did we put? Fill it in, please. The heavens and the earth... The sea and all that is in them, i.e., the entire universe is the Creator's jurisdiction. True or false? But of course. Clearly, just as the New Testament does, the Old Testament links the seal of God with His office as Creator as memorialized in the seventh day Sabbath, the day, both Old and New teach, the day that Jesus is Lord of. Just two more. Jot them down, please. Number six. Evidence number six. The sealed ones 
are given a global mission, a global message that proclaims, fill it in, worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of waters. You know, it's amazing. John describes in Revelation 14, he describes these 144,000, this final generation. And as soon as he can get that description out of his mouth, he immediately takes his pen to describing the message they will take. They are raised up by God to take this message to the entire planet. And what's the message? Um, let, let's let's uh, put it on the screen first. Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel. This is right after he's described the sealed. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And he said with a loud voice, there's your megaphone again, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of waters. Would you write it down, please? Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7 are clear, are clearly a call to earth's inhabitants to return to the Creator. Return to the One who made heaven and earth and the sea. Return to the Creator and His seventh-day Sabbath. You say, I don't say a word about that. Let me just tell you something. The language in the Greek in verse 7 of Revelation 14 is the identical language in the Greek, in the Greek Old Testament Septuagint, in the fourth commandment. The same language. It's the Sabbath and the Creator that is the passion of that appeal. Finally, evidence number seven. Evidence number seven, the one who seals God's friends, write it down, is the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus called in John 16, 13, the Spirit of truth. Whatever the Spirit seals into you, it's going to be true. It's going to be the truth. And by the way, there are three great verses. Ephesians 1, 13, Ephesians 4, 30, and 2 Corinthians 1, 22, all describe the Holy Spirit as the one who seals. Let's put Ephesians, uh, yeah, Ephesians 4, 30 on the screen. Paul writes, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. The Holy Spirit's the one who seals you, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Write this down, please. The very Spirit that John was in the Lord's day on. Remember he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The very Spirit is the one who seals the Creator's name and the Creator's day upon the minds and hearts of an end time generation. God says, hey, I belong to them. I'm their creator. They belong to me. They're my creation. There they are, ladies and gentlemen, seven of them. Seven compelling evidences that the sealing of Revelation 7 describes a loyalty to the creator God that will be evidenced by the observance of the seventh-day Sabbath. I don't know about you, but when I'm thinking, you know, would I like a little seal on me? I tell you what, if that seal means that I belong to the creator, if that seal means his name on my life, I want that seal. I mean, don't you? I mean, come on, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Is there a Christian on earth who would not want the seal of God in his or her forehead? I can't think of a Christian alive who wouldn't say, No, seal me. Put the Creator's seal right. It's nothing going to go on the skin. It's going to go inside my life as a symbol of my commitment to the One who owns me, as it were, the One who created me. Hey, this much I know, and then I'll sit down. This much I know. It is no accident... That this particular rumor from the East is shown in the Apocalypse to be on the ascendancy at the very time in human history. There's never been an hour like this. At the very time in human history when the notion of God as creator is under the most withering attack it has ever suffered. It's no coincidence that at this time God raises up a generation and he says, boy, you belong to me. No coincidence. 
the secular postmodern culture that rules academia, it rules the entertainment world, it even rules mainline religion. That culture is avowed in its opposition to the notion of a creator God. And I'll tell you what, the, the forces of political correctness are exacting a heavy, heavy toll to anybody who would out there stand up and say, wait a minute, I don't, I, I don't believe that. I do not believe that. I believe. I believe in a living God who created me. I tell you what, it's a huge toll to stand up out there with that confession. But I tell, you, I, I tell you also this in my last breath. You look at this. Look at this. Get a, get a camera here, please. You look at this guy. Take a careful look at him, please. Our silent friend reminds us that without the Creator, this is all we have to look forward to. Take a look. That's it, baby. That's your destiny, girl. Boy. That's your eternity. Take a good look. Take a good look. Darwinism, naturalism, evolutionary science and philosophy have nothing to give you except the cold hand of death. Hey, you laugh. You laugh. It's true. This is all you get. This is all you get. According to the apocalypse, there will be a generation at the end of time that in the face of overwhelming public resistance, a generation that will stand up and say, you know what? This much I know. This much I know. I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. This much I know. Somebody has put his name on my life. And I belong to him. And if it's a choice between two hands, if it's a choice between this hand and a nail-scarred hand, there will be a generation at the end of time that stands up and says, you can have that hand. I will take the nail-scarred hand in my hand and I will live. I will die for my Creator. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't want to be over dramatic here, but you know what? There are only two hands to choose from. There isn't a third hand. There's no third hand. You, oh, you can't say, well, I'm going to hold this hand because I really kind of want to keep in touch with those people. And I'm going to hold this hand over here. You can't hold two hands. There isn't a marriage on earth that will allow you to hold two hands. Trust me. You can't hold two hands. You have to let go of one hand and only clasp the other. You can choose this hand. Or you can choose the hand, the nail-scarred hand of a living Creator. Who, by the way, if I understand this book correctly, not only offers us His hand, not only offers us His heart, but if the book is true, also offers us His home one day. And when He describes that home in Isaiah 66, He says, let me tell you what it's going to be like at home, folks. From one Sabbath to another, all flesh will come and worship before Me. I want to be a part of that reunion, don't you? I want to hold a living hand. I don't know what your choice is, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen.